they got married and they bought a house but they mm. didn't they didn't buy a house like anyone else they bought a piece of land across the road from my grandparents they found a house for five hundred dollars that was in this in the uh, path of a motorway and had to be moved within two weeks oh wow so they borrowed the money to get it moved my father cut the house in half to fit it on the trucks he cut it in half using a handsaw oh my god you're and, kidding me and they then no using a handsaw and then they transported it and he he put it onto the section where he wanted it and then he invented a system by way they could jack the house up to create a story underneath it helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers businesses and lives this is the influence ecology podcast now here is your host john patterson good morning good afternoon and good evening wherever you are in the world i'm your host john patterson the co-founder and ceo of influence ecology we are the leading business education in transactional competence broadcasting from ojai california the influence ecology podcast features case studies stories and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not just at work, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals studied, practiced, and applied our approach and found out that those who transact powerfully thrive. Our featured interview is with James Walls, a product marketing director with Dimension Data in Singapore. Dimension Data uses the power of technology to help organizations achieve great things in the digital era. In this episode, we explore the subject of labor and address how nowadays the ethic of working long hours is no longer a badge of honor. In fact, the notion of trading hours for dollars has been long under fire especially since no one can work enough hours to meet their financial goals. And the notion of trading knowledge for dollars is only part of the story. You'll hear how James, who seems to have been weaned on labor, hard work, and intense pressure, began to find freedom, peace of mind, and satisfaction through the development of his transactional competence. Today's Guru Talk is by co-founder Kirkland Tibbles with more on this subject. In this talk, you'll hear Kirkland speak about what we call the biological conditions of life and how when these are threatened, we have a tough time satisfying other conditions. Okay, here's the interview. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John, and uh, welcome to everyone else. All right, well, first thing, let's get to know you just a little bit. Tell us about you. Grew up in a, in a small town called Upper Hutt, uh, which is about an hour north of Wellington in, in New Zealand. Grew up across the road from my grandparents, so we had a very close family, and it was a very technical family. So from, from forever, I've been... Uh, understanding the the whole ethic of working first and then doing everything else, and so my father, a uh, bit of a bit of a genius really. He was a uh, he is a, a mechanic. He's a fitter and turner. He's a engineer. He's a builder, and you know we did we did everything ourselves with the help of my grandfather as well. So hmm. I really started from as, as young as I can remember around mechanical things, around problem solving, and that that had both a lot of 
cool factors. You know, we got to, I got to, uh, I think when I was like three years old, he got me to turn the engine over of a car by turning the ignition key. So, and, and doing exactly as I was told to do that so he could work on the gearbox with the thing you know, just about running. And so, so that from, from that point of view was really cool. But it also brought a lot of discipline with it. And so I grew up in this environment of doing as you're told, of having that, that discipline and of, of working hard. Uh, and and that was, you know, there was a lot of self-sufficiency about that. So that, that we, we were always poor. We were always very poor. Hmm. Uh, and they tried several several different things, pretty naive things at times, to to make money. And some of that worked, and some of that didn't. And they they eventually um, got into a lot of debt around the 1987 share market crash, actually. Mm. But before that, they were uh, my my parents met my father. Figured he was onto a good thing, so he asked my mother to uh, marry him two weeks after meeting her. And <laughs> <laughs> might have been some panic there. And after that, they got married two years later, and they bought a house. But they mm. didn't they didn't buy a house like anyone else. They bought a piece of land across the road from my grandparents. They found a house for five hundred dollars that was in this in the uh, path of a motorway and had to be moved within two weeks. Oh, wow. So they borrowed the money to get it moved. My father cut the house in half to fit it on the trucks. He cut it in half using a handsaw. <laughs> oh, my God. You're and, kidding me. And they then, no, using a handsaw. And then they transported it and he, he put it onto the section where he wanted it. And then he invented a system by way they could jack the house up to create a story underneath it. And that story underneath it became the garage. So they jacked it up on 44-gallon drums, figuring out a system to do that by uh, weighted levers and running backwards and forwards on planks and things like that. And then he built a garage underneath it. And this is all by hand. I gotta say, I'm I'm uh, I'm imagining the movie Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Are you familiar with that oh. movie? <laughs> uh, they had the Professor Potts and and Dick Van Dyke played a character. For some reason, I've got that guy in my mind as your dad. Yeah. It's really great. It, it was it was kind of the the combination between that and the the intense manual labor, and and so. And, and because he was the guy that, that dug all of the drains. Now, when you're digging drains on flat land, you've got to go down deep. So he, he dug big trenches, six, seven, eight feet deep. And we're talking about the land wasn't nice clay. It was an old riverbed. So there were boulders in there. And when I look at the hours put into building this house, building this environment, I, I remember, oh, I, and I must have been 12 at the time, um, you know, one of our many jobs, concreting, we love to concrete things. Yeah. Uh, and my grand, my grandfather at age 79 was uh, was humping the concrete and, and you know, putting the mix in the concrete mixer and, and doing as much manual labor as anyone else. And that was, that was the way they did things. So your early lessons were in engineering, obviously, but also, a lot of labor. Well, yeah. So, so I think the the greatest thing that they taught me. I remember we built our own trailers. You know, a trailer carries stuff behind a car. Yeah. We built our own. Found an old axle. Found some wheels. You know, had all the welding equipment. Built a trailer, and they were having a problem with the trailer, and they were having a problem with the, the strength of the coupling. And I remember my father and grandfather turning to me and saying, "What do you think?" How would you solve this? Hmm. And then working through my logic with me. And that to me was 
a that was I was getting respect mm-hmm. you know, as a as a child uh, among two qualified engineers. Mm. B that just a, a, a hugely important lesson in problem solving. You know, and and if there's if there's one thing I don't think our education system that I've seen teaches, it's how to solve problems. Uh, especially here in Singapore, it seems to me the main the main subject is conformity, um, as opposed to creativity. And to you know, there's, there's I believe in most things there's five or six questions you can ask and and continue asking until you start to understand the situation, and then you can conceive about how to how to creatively go about solving a problem. And and that's yeah, just hugely important. Yeah, well, I you know I've known you long enough to know that you're 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 a very very logical person. I think logic is one of the things that that if I were to describe you, that that probably would be a a, a key characteristic. But but I also find you. I love that you're talking about all of the background with with the engineering and the mechanical and so much uh, working through the mechanical and problem solving and testing and so forth, just because it certainly describes you and it certainly describes what I know about you. All right. Well, so let's talk about your 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 work and your career, your money and so forth. Generally speaking, most people, you know, they they get into their 20s or so and they start to go in pursuit of some some kind of life and what i want to know about is is in the early days of your pursuit of your your career your money and so forth what were the things that guided what you thought then they they may have been later proven naive but what are some of the things that guided your thinking then i don't think i ever made a decision here as part of growing up and my parents having an entrepreneurial spirit they were trying things and it never worked and there was a huge amount of naivety about that but you know they got me to put a suit on when i was 12 years old and go knock door to door trying to sell stuff they got me when i was eight years old to cut firewood into kindling and to put it in in uh, paper bags and lug it around the neighborhood and in a wheelbarrow you know that was really smart by them because i didn't sell any and they had a winter's worth of kindling already cut um but, <laughs> But the, but there was always there, there was two things. It was always have a job, always have a job. So through my teenage years, I had two or three jobs while at school. The second one was was find something that's going to make money. And for me, I'd always had uh, an interest in IT and computers, and I'd always linked sales. People made money. Uh, and the third one was the fact that I was never going to go to college. That was never discussed. There was never there was never money, so it was never it was never a topic. It was you know when you finish school, what will you do? Yeah, and, and so those things really pushed me and thrust me into a into an industry where it was possible to make money without qualifications. Hmm. And so uh, selling both firstly in in retail and then moving into account management, dealing with small small business, and then and then moving from there. So my my twenties were characterised by um, by that to a, to a certain extent. At the same time, I was I was hugely lucky with the skills that I was being taught elsewhere and and chose to take advantage of. In those intervening years, my mother became an instructor for Dale Carnegie courses, and so as a seventeen-year-old, I I got to participate in as a student in the 
uh, Dale Carnegie Leadership Program and the Sales Program and really start to learn some of those foundational skills about showmanship as well, I think, especially in the sales program. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, when you, you, you talked a little bit about the interest in computers, when you began to explore that, where was the industry at the time that you began to be interested in computers? Yeah, so, so my interest was Commodore, as a brand in the day, uh-huh. had, had just come out with a, with a machine called the VIC-20, which, yeah. which I think while, uh, when I was 11 or 12, I, I bought with my parents' help and paid off over three years. Um, the, the, what's known as the x86, so the normal PC with a, with a green screen and, and two floppy yeah. disk drives and no hard drives, was, was on the market, and we did eventually get one of those. So I was, I was kind of at the, really at the dawn of where normal businesses in New Zealand were starting to really get their head around what it meant to have computer computers in the office on most desks, on being connected up, on being able to share information, being able to 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 type letters. One of my classmates put in an assignment, and it was printed on a laser printer, and I remember. Th- looking at how beautiful that looked mm. compared to anything we'd seen before. So I really got involved at the point where all of this stuff was was becoming accessible to people. And I imagine that you were self-taught. I, I don't know why I think that, but with your, were you self-taught? Did you, did you take classes in, in anything or did you just get in there and, and try and fail and try and fail and work through it? Or I, 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 think, I think everyone was self-taught. There, there weren't. Um, there was you know, there were, teach. <laughs> no, no. There was. There was. Uh, you know, if you wanted to learn a little bit about programming, you bought the latest magazine that had a code, and, and you you sat there and you typed it in, and then you spent the next twenty four hours figuring out why it didn't work, and whether it was a whether it was a, a, a typing error on your part or whether there was a typing error in what they'd published, which you know it was about that was wrong half the time and what I'd written was wrong half the time. So, so you got to play around in, in that sort of regard. I never really picked up into that other than understanding the logic of it. So I, I, I didn't really go on and learn lots of programming languages. I, I've kind of learned enough to be able to troubleshoot at times. But one of the things that always stuck with me was my, you know, to, today we live in, in a world that's, I could say financially obscene in some ways. I look at my father, I look at him as being an educator, as being a, 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 an engineer, as being highly skilled in a, in a field that the world needs more of. And what he was getting paid, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning for. And yet I'm here earning so much more than he ever could with very little qualifications, with you know very little that I'm doing in terms of labor that is productive. I may have influence on things that have influence on things. You know, I look at how our society um, values artisan skills. And, and I think there's, there's fundamentally an imbalance there. And, and so you know, they were smart enough to guide me down this path of saying, well, hey, if you could, you've been able to put your suit on and go and sell stuff, go and sell stuff. You understand computers, use that as a place for selling. We think you can probably make money doing that. And, and so I kind of never made a decision. As to as to where my career was going to go, I had this need to work, this 
and, and was driven driven to work, driven to make money, driven to succeed, uh, without knowing why. And I have to say that my my twenties were were really spent in this in this world of of knowing that I needed to move forward, but not questioning what that meant or or why. Hmm. From what I've heard from you and in some of our own conversations you have been interested in in your own growth in uh, developing yourself becoming more effective have you always been driven to be more effective more successful is that it did it, it, or it did it start in your 20s or did this come later uh, it sounds like it did Sounds like it started in the early days, yes? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it did. And I, I think coming to influence ecology was part of, part of, part frustration. Frustration that I, I wasn't moving ahead in my career at that time, that everything felt like hard work. And part, partly a, a need to take some of the knowledge I'd learned, because in the interim I'd done an MBA as well. I hadn't, I actually didn't complete that, but I did all of the classwork. And I was, I was seeking for a, practical way to put it all into use hmm. rather than a theoretical way to learn more models okay so let's talk about your frustration for a moment because <clears throat> you said a few things uh, again i'm i'm trying to piece together the mystery that is james walls <laughs> and so the the lessons in work in your early days uh you know from your family there there must have been an, an extraordinary work ethic there and going out and, and beating the pavement and, and learning to sell and learning computers and, and so forth and so on. You say that when you met with Influence Ecology, you were frustrated that your work wasn't paying off? You mean, you mean the, the amount of hours and time and energy and effort you were putting in wasn't paying off? It wasn't moving as quickly as you wanted? What, what do you mean by that? No, I, I think there are, there are a couple of things. At that time, my relentless focus on work on getting ahead on on really being driven by by a, a current if you like was putting me into a place where i was i think fundamentally unhappy i was certainly very stressed i felt out of control in terms of the uh, way i could influence my future and i also felt frustrated that i wasn't moving fast enough so i'd kind of created this whole narrative that said I needed to move better, faster, quicker. You know, there are people around me earning more. There are people around me in more senior positions at a, at a younger age. You know, what am I doing? You know, when you, when you go back and pick through the layers of that, you pick through the highs and lows of childhood, whether, whether you were bullied at school, you pick through all sorts of things. And all of this just starts to, to pile in on top of you and, and direct you in places you don't necessarily want to go. Drew Knowles introduced me to influence ecology, so I kind of got myself into a into a mindset through through Drew's good work that realised that there was some better ways to to enjoy life mm -hmm. um, without necessarily sacrificing the, the the goals that had become part of my nature, and that I had lots to learn in a different way. So then when you first started participating here, what did you begin to discover? Like where did you find out you were naive and and where 
Where were you misguided? Uh, well, you know, I think my participation actually started from a place of arrogance more than naivety. Um, <laughs> I, I remember. I concur. <laughs> but that's good. That's so, so good. Yeah. I, I, I look back thinking, you know, I know this stuff. Uh, this is offering a structure that I didn't have. If you'd like to decode the mysteries of an ambitious life, you can register for the Influence Ecology webinar called Ambitious Living, the Eight Defining Principles. This free one-hour webinar offers eight principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. To give you a taste, here's one of the principles. It's called Accurate Thinking. The essential idea is this. You and I are always transacting to produce a better income, influential identity, and satisfying work. These situations, money, career, and work, are but three of 14 unavoidable conditions of life. If you don't think accurately about these conditions and how you'll satisfy each of them, you will likely produce hardship for yourself and your family. So, how do you think accurately about these and other conditions of life? Attend the webinar to find out more. Once registered, you'll receive the 2016 edition of Ambitious Living, a 12-page guide offering a blueprint for the eight defining principles, each of which asks important questions to help direct your aims. To learn more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast, or from your mobile phone, you can click the image art for this episode to find a link to register. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, the, 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 funny, the funny thing is I was reflecting on this over the weekend. The deeper I get into this study, the less I know and the less I am embodying. And that doesn't mean I'm not using it more than I ever did. It just means that the, the more there is to embody. And looking at what I understood of it three years ago, we were very much scratching the surface, or I was very much scratching the surface and getting some great results from doing so. But this is just this stuff is just so deep that it, um, that I feel what there is to understand is just continuing to open up exponentially. I think sometimes what people say is is you know they just continue to find out where they may be naive, and I think if you're like most people, James, who talk about what they get out of our programs, they don't have naive like a bad thing anymore. And sometimes people are now hungry. Where where am I naive? What part of this am I naive about? What do I not understand here? And I certainly have watched you go from a guy that's got a lot of, of ego, right? And, and you're an inventor, and we can talk about that in just a minute, but your inventor personality, I should say, and we can talk about that in just a minute. But you certainly have gotten hungry to find out where you're naive. And I'm curious about what the naivete was costing you before. Yeah, I, I think it's as fundamental as just an all-round lack of enjoyment. There was just an intensity that I had constructed that, uh, that around everything. Ah. I was running a photography company on the side. I taught myself photography and, and uh, a guy and I set up a company. So in my intensity, we had gone into that and I was shooting weddings most weekends and editing 
content most nights and you know, we'd built a, a successful side business in my intensity to keep moving. Yeah, so then in your early days with Influence Ecology and you're discovering where you're naive and particularly you spoke a little bit about work. Let, let's, let's go to work for just a second. Let's describe work for a second as we teach it. And then I want to hear what correlations that you may have made. So let's just, first of all, let's talk about work. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to throw to you to, to talk about the condition of life work. You want to take a stab at it? Sure. So work is what you do with your mind slash body and work is the activity of life. Yeah. So as we teach it, work, work is a condition of life. A condition of life is an an unavoidable and immutable situation or condition. You must satisfy or you'll suffer. So you got to get up every morning and do something. What are you going to do with your mind body? Most people spend their day laboring or, or being busy or being aimless or unproductive. You could say most people, I will say. And one of the things that people find in our study is they find out where they're not working as they want to. They're working too much. They are stressed because they're not taking care of their mind. They are all of that, right? Yeah. Look, uh, you and I were speaking the other day uh, on, on the, the example of my exercise. Yes. And the, the truth that I held as a narrative, I hate exercise. Yes. And how the naive me would, would take that at the end of, a, of a, a six month period where I had charted out my progress on exercise. And I would say, that's done. I hate exercise. Let's book the next six months in. <laughs> how fun. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Talk about lack of fun. And I mean, I got some some very good help to actually stop a minute and go into an inquiry that says, why do I hate exercise? I hate exercise because it's not much fun. It's not much fun because I'm always pushing myself and I get injured. I'm always pushing myself because, why am I always pushing myself? Because I always have. I wear the uh, GPS on my wrist and look at the the fact that I'm only running five minute kilometers or whatever that is in miles, and you know I, I should really be at Olympic athlete status at yeah. the age of 42, and I better run a bit faster and my heel hurts, but let's just ignore that and push through it. And and that, that for me that's what work was was it, let's ignore it and push through it until I came to realise through through a lot of help that why am I doing that? And in, in actual fact. Honest effort is good enough in some areas. And as soon as I got to that realization, I actually started to enjoy running and cycling and doing stuff that was not for any specific goal or purpose other than feeling good and taking in the air and exploring your environment. That's great. All right. So now correlating work with the, you know, the driving the early want to drive is there anything else to to correlate about where you find found out you were naive look i i think there were a number of a, a number of things the, the the first one i was i was very naive at the beginning about the system 
about how people make money is in most cases it's not based on your effort. I remember through FOT learning that people don't get share options based on their ability. You know, and when you work in a large corporation, you get to a certain level, you get offered share options. It's a, it's a way you make more money. But people don't just get plucked out of wherever and say, oh, Joe, you're a great guy, I'll give you some share options. Yeah. That in itself is a transaction between usually yourself and your senior manager that says, you want to keep me around here, you better get me onto that program. That was the first thing really with FOT that opened my eyes to this, that said, it's not what I'm delivering, it's, it's not even the value they're getting that drives whether I'm going to get more in terms of things like these share options. It's the risk of withdrawal. It's that, and, and John, I'm trying to remember the exact words here, but it's the, you know, that, the, that something is of value when it harms if you withdraw it. So it's the threat of withdrawing my contribution that actually drives these additional mechanisms. So how did that one, that one lesson begin to change things for you? It really started to help me to figure out that I needed to make some moves. I couldn't sit around and wait for someone to notice that I was laboring. That I was <laughs> clearly a nice guy who was doing it hard and we should give him a hand. <laughs> yeah. That's so um, well said. Uh, <laughs> that describes so many people sitting around waiting for someone to notice. Oh, well, uh, you're, you're laboring so much. We should, we should pay you more or, or uh, find a, an easier way for you to do that <laughs> or something. That's no, well, that's exactly right. The fact is that that misnomer is what the fabric of our society is built on. People doing more in the hope of being recognized in the strive of getting most most value out of people. I think, James, one of the things, one of the things you just said, it just came out of your mouth and it was so great I had to stop and take a note. You said people doing, the misnomer is that people do more in hopes of being acknowledged or paid or given a raise or gosh, you're so darn valuable, I need to pay you more. Or gosh, you're so darn valuable, I know you only charge X, but I'm gonna pay you more. That whole notion, I think that's what you're pointing to, yes? Yeah, and the fact that there's almost an exploitation of the naivety, hmm. which, is, which is natural. Because if I've got you working hard, I will figure out the least that I need to do to keep you working hard as productive as you can be for me. Good. So this is really good because I'm starting to hear the sort of the wholeness of your journey here because you, you know, you were taught by laborers. You start out on a, <laughs> the adventures of doing more. Uh, with a commitment to be acknowledged. And so here you are at Influence Ecology and you're finding out that doing more doesn't equal greater paychecks. Doing more doesn't equal more income. Doing more doesn't equal an increase in value. Is there anything else you want to say about that? Yeah, and I'm finding this out every day at the moment. The trick is doing enough. Doing enough to be able to describe the acts. Doing enough to know what you're talking about, to know when, when you're dealing with someone else who is trying to BS you or has made a supposition that this is the way something's going to work. To be able to, to have that conversation, be able to unpick what actually needs to happen. 
and and this is really the marrying of where we started this conversation around problem solving that I don't have to know everything about building a website. I have to know enough to be able to make sure that what I'm wanting to have achieved by someone else is what they understand needs to be achieved. Part of this is, is actually now coming to a stage where I'm actually for our own benefit helping people I'm working with as suppliers and providers to labor less mm. because if I can help them to not waste effort then we get a better result and you know I, I, I come back to both as an inventor personality uh, and with the need to satisfy my own conditions of life that there is you know there is a, a you could call it selfish I mean, there is certainly a, a focus on my needs that comes into this conversation but actually through that I can I, I've been able to start to see how to help other people labor less to, to to meet that need the other thing this whole labor work inventor personality ethic yeah is the other side of that ego and the other side of that that arrogance that we spoke about you know the arrogance for me always exposed itself most as it's my responsibility and in actual fact, when I was working lots with other people and something went really right, that was the team. The team nailed it. If something went really wrong, that was my fault. And you know, that was just one of those, one of those narratives that, that is part of ego. But, but really, that one weighed really heavy until I realized it. So since we teach transactional competence and one of the fundamentals of transactionalism is the whole you know w-h-o-l-e the whole and most people don't consider the whole it sounds like from an inventor perspective in the way that you used to think if you got rained on you might consider yourself at fault for getting wet <laughs> you could say as opposed to it rained on me well, it was it was certainly my fault for not checking the forecast and carrying a raincoat. <laughs> exactly, right? When you when you're walking around in life like if something bad happens it's my fault. I, you know, I, I'm I'm thinking about James. I I believe you're in the room at the conversation, but we're having a room at one of our global conferences about the impact of the housing crisis in 2008-9 here in the United States and there were many people who suffered greatly in that crisis. And there were a large number of people who didn't consider everything going on that may have impacted them. Um, we've gotten used to, uh, in, a, in an empowerment kind of way, taking responsibility for the entirety of the market. Uh, forgetting that there are market forces and all kinds of economic forces and so forth that are driving things. And there are, you know, people who are doing not so nice things and, and the like. You, you've talked about the way in which you, you no longer perhaps blame yourself for the things that don't go wrong. How else is your understanding of that beginning to free you from the the thought of I have to do more I have to do more I have to do more I have I'm not doing enough um how is that continuing to free you understanding the whole of any transaction you're a part of well I, I, 
there's a, there's a couple of um, uh, great things that, that come to mind for me. The first one is at our, at our recent conference, we spoke about relationships. We spoke about breakdowns in, in relationships and we spoke about also the breakdown of having, of, of coming to grips with what it means to have more of anything. Use money as an example. Uh, and you know the the example of that is is lottery winners who who then go and blow it all because they don't know how to have. Yeah. And so I had relationships and having collide while I was at conference. On on the first night, I had a call from from my wife that said, you know, it's just terrible with what's happened with Britain and Brexit. You know, I've just checked our investments. We've just lost forty thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have trusted that broker. We shouldn't have done this. We shouldn't have done that. And I said, "That's fantastic! <laughs> isn't isn't that brilliant? We've just you know, we've just lost forty grand on paper. That's great." And she said, "Well, what do you mean?" I said, "Well, seven years ago, we didn't have forty grand saved. You know, we weren't in a position to have the possibility of losing that on paper." You know, when you consider the percentage of, of, of funds we've got saved, 40 grand is not a big deal. And it's only on paper. It hasn't been realized. Mm -hmm. Of course, most of that's now, now come back and, and, it's all, and it's all good. But just having that, that freedom to, to you know, understand what a, what a fortunate marker it is that we're in that position, not in the position of someone who's just lost their house and doesn't have 40 grand to begin with. That helps me to just take stock of how how fortunate we are and, and, and that I'm actually not competing against anyone. You know, there are always going to be people out there that have much, much more and people who have much, much less. I spent 41 years of my life living within 10 miles of where I was born. We then made a decision and packed up our bags and moved 12,000 miles on an adventure, you know, and, and seeing the way that different people live, that different people survive, that they thrive, that they struggle, just opens up to something, something fantastic. As I said, today's Guru Talk is by co-founder Kirkland Tibbles, with more on the subject introduced by James. This is a small piece of a focus lecture webinar titled, Work, the Activity of Life. In this talk, You'll hear Kirkland speak about what we call the biological conditions of life. These conditions are health, work, and knowing. And how when these conditions of life are threatened, we have a tough time satisfying other conditions. All right, here's Kirkland. But fundamentally, where all of our biology rests and what we get triggered by is either A, we aren't able because of our situation, of our mind and body, or we simply cannot make the moves, we cannot do the work, we can't organize ourselves, we don't know how to move in these other conditions of life, we don't know what to do, or we cannot organize the acts, coordinate the action of those, and it triggers a biological reaction. And this is fundamental to our study. This is why these conditions of life are never, should never be considered handled. They should be considered dynamic conditions. They are conditioned all the time. And as an organism in an environment, as someone who runs around in and attempts to survive an environment, to participate in an environment, 
we as biological creatures must always consider these conditions of life in play, always in question, never handled for good. We age, we, we are un, unable to move our bodies later on in life like we could when we were younger, and our brains change. If we don't remain active, our bodies become unable to move, we, be, we become sick. If we don't use and practice our brain, if we attach ourselves to, a, to the couch and let the TV do its job, we tend to suffer illnesses in different ways, as you all know. I'm preaching to the choir. It, it, it's about staying active, and when we move, we are at risk, and so biological conditions of life should never be considered handled. What do we mean when we say biological conditions of life, and specifically health work uh, and knowing? Well, we define in the last session to, to a greater degree than we will here what we mean by the condition of our biology. Remember that we are borrowing the term from our buddy John Dewey, who states that uh, biology is the best terminology to use in the overall consideration of everything physiological and cognitive, everything about our physical being, our mental being, how we behave and behave with others should be the best term, and we agree, is biology. And if you don't have your health, it's very difficult to be satisfied out there in any other condition of life. Without your health, it's very difficult to concentrate and focus on what you must to be able to know, to organize the acts required to be organized and ordered in your environment enough to be aware of the reality of the environment in which you are attempting to exist. Knowing is the term we use to characterize the condition of our awareness of our environment. You could say reality, although we shy away from that term. Our ability to function as an organism in an environment depends on whether or not we can order and understand the ordering of our environment. Again, a term we borrow from John Dewey and, and from Dewey and Bentley from their brilliant book, Knowing and the Known. Knowing is a series of organizing acts. That's also found in, in much of Dewey's work on logic and his psychology. In our doing, in our movement, in our activity, we must not only understand, we must be able to function and be able to order and understand the order of our environment so our moving in our activity doesn't get us killed. Just because you can move your body in the environment of Los Angeles doesn't mean that you're safe. What it means is that you can get up and do something. But if you don't know, if you don't understand and are unaware of how the environment called Los Angeles, especially at Oakview and Gardner or Gardner and uh, Hollywood Boulevard, then, then if you hit the crosswalk at that particular intersection and you are unaware of the rules of the game of that environment and you cannot order yourself and organize your acts in that environment, you're going to have a really tough time getting across that street. You're going to have to be lucky. Well, think of it the same way as a, as a fundamental and biological condition in the marketplace. If you do not know the order if you can't organize the environment and the acts of the environment for you and others in the environment called the marketplace, you're going to have a really tough time satisfying your linguistic conditions of life for money and career, which are the conditions of life that we concentrate on at Influence Ecology. If you are unable to and don't understand and are unaware of the rules of the game in any condition of life, especially for money, and for career 
in an environment called the, the marketplace, you're going to have a tough time. You're going to have a tough time. You're going to end up doing an awful lot of labor, which we'll get into in a minute. The condition of life work. Again, using the term biology. Work we mean is the activity of our biology. It's the all-inclusive word for all of the activity that we do in our thinking and our acting. And we characterize human activity as being comprised of three fundamental acts or actions or activity. That is labor, work, and action. Together, they make up what we mean when we are describing the activity of life. That all human action can be summed up in three, these three characterizations. That what we do with our mind and body and taking care of our conditions of life fundamentally fall in one of these three categories. Labor, work, or action. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, check out our webinar, Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. The webinar is available globally. We'll teach you the core principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. This webinar is for those who aspire to an influential life that provides measurable satisfaction for themselves, their family, and their organizations. This webinar is specifically designed for those who don't want to sacrifice a well-balanced life for superior financial rewards. They want it all. To find out more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. In our next episode, we interview Nathan Havey, founder of Thrive Consulting from Michigan. Nathan's entrepreneurial journey includes confronting his own conceit and entitlement. There's this thing about audacity, you know, in the, in the Obama age, the, the audacity to really strive for huge things and mm. to, to really make it matter uh, is, is something that's out there. But with audacity, you know, the difference between audacity and naivete might be transactional competence. Mm. That, that you can, you can you know, have these big thoughts and strive for, for big things, but if you, if you can't actually organize the effort of people, if you can't get the help that you need to actually succeed in those kinds of things, to, at the scale that is required for you to not be full of it, then you are full of it. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to share it with others, you can find it and share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can also find us on iTunes to subscribe. We'd love to know what you think, so please take a moment and offer us a review. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank our guest for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with them and all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the globe. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. And finally, thanks to our producer, Jason Kelly, editing and music by Bellringer Productions, music supervisors, 
Dashley LeCorps, and Marcus Bell.